Tonight we're going to take a, a break, just one week, uh, from the book of Isaiah. I think this will be the only night we do it. What we're going to be in in Isaiah six or seven and eight, or eight and nine. It's pretty exciting, so I don't want to go from there long. But I've been praying a lot about being able to share the gospel and having opportunities. And as I was praying this morning for that, the Lord brought this to my mind, and so I. I feel this is something he wanted us to discuss tonight on how to share the gospel. Now, you notice you've got a handout that's four pages long, and you're probably thinking, goodness, if the handout's four pages long, how long's the sermon? Not much longer. Almost everything in my notes is in the handout. I wanted the handout to be more than just something to hold, but I wanted it to be something you could study and look at and kind of be able to use uh, in being able to share the gospel. Now, most disciples of Jesus... Deal with the tension when it comes to sharing the gospel. And the tension is this. We know we're supposed to share the gospel. Chances are we want to share the gospel. But we, we don't feel we know how to share the gospel. Not knowing how to share the gospel is probably one of the greatest hindrances to our sharing of the gospel. Now this doesn't mean we don't know the gospel. Very likely we do know the gospel. I have no doubts that if I were to ask anyone in here tonight to, to just tell me what the gospel is, you could give me a 1 Corinthians 15 answer. That it's Jesus died for our sins according to Scripture. He was buried for three days and He rose again on the third day according to Scripture. But knowing the gospel and knowing how to share the gospel aren't necessarily the same thing. Year, uh, not years ago, just a few weeks ago, a few months ago, I was visiting with someone and the opportunity to share the gospel came up and I took it and it was probably one of the ugliest presentations of the gospel I have ever gone through in my life. It was accurate, um, but it was kind of rambly, if you know what I mean. Uh, it didn't really start at point A and lead to point B. We just sort of jumped around all over the place. It, like I said, it was an accurate gospel presentation. It was a passionate gospel presentation, but I didn't feel it was as clear as I wanted it to be. So when I left that day, I determined I was going to find something, either develop something, find something where I could have a, a clear idea of how to share the gospel, where I could have some way to share it that would be accurate, simple, clear, direct, and in a logical kind of way to present the gospel to someone and bring them to the place where they would be urged to repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we're looking at tonight is sort of the fruit of this determination. And what I did was I've studied several books on evangelism through the years and I kind of meshed two different things together because it was the way that made most sense to me. Now, before we get into the steps of sharing the gospel, I want to give you what Ray Comfort calls the number one rule to effective evangelism. Right. And it's just be nice. Now, this may seem like an overstatement, but think about the world we live in right now. How many people are angry? Or unhappy? Many. Our culture right now isn't particularly kind or friendly. The news is doom and gloom and stress. The talking heads are constantly stirring people up to be angry and afraid. And these things affect all of us. Us and the people around us. And when we think about it, it brings up a, a quote on kindness. Everyone you meet is fighting a battle you know nothing about. Be kind always. Now, while I don't know who originally made this statement, I feel confident it's an accurate statement. In a world where everyone is angry or stressed or afraid or fighting a battle we know nothing about or any combination of those things, 
How great is kindness? How attractive is friendliness? The fact of the matter is, angry, abrasive, and indifferent people don't win many souls. So the first step in sharing the gospel is just be nice. Be friendly. Now don't think about this merely in terms of being nice and friendly to your friends, to people you already know. Think of this in terms of being nice and friendly to everyone you encounter. When you're out and about, when you're at Walmart, at the restaurant, doing whatever activities you do on a daily basis, be friendly, be nice. Do things like make a point to make eye contact, smile at people, say hi. It's important if we're going to share the gospel with people, it's important for them to know we're normal and it's important for them to know we care. And we can do a good portion of showing both of those by being nice, by being friendly, and we, we stand out as being different from the world around them. Again, most people have enough stress. They have enough anger. They have enough a fear. They don't need anything like that from anyone else. But most people need someone to be nice to them. Most people need someone to be friendly to them. So being friendly, being nice is attractive. And once we get used to being nice to people and and maybe striking up conversations with them, we can then begin to move the conversation towards spiritual issues. As a general rule, I don't feel it's wise to jump, jump straight to Jesus in a conversation with someone. The only exception, in my opinion, would be if the person has invited us specifically to come over and tell them about Jesus. Otherwise, it's probably best to build toward Jesus and sharing the gospel by beginning with with small talk. This allows us to make a connection with people and then begin to talk to them about spiritual issues. Several years ago, I found an acronym that to memorize, to help me sort of guide the conversation when talking to people I'm wanting to try to evangelize, right? And it's FIRE, F, family and friends, right? Talk about their family, their kids, their grandkids, their spouses, their friends. Do you have any mutual friends, What, whatever, interests, right? This could be a sports, an organization. It could be the weather. It could be any number of things, right? But, of course, I would say with interest, stay off of those things, that are inflammatory and are divisive, right? Stay to to fairly safe and neutral interests. Then religion, this is where we're starting to turn the conversation toward spiritual things. And then we go to evangelism. Now, when we begin to swing the conversation towards spiritual issues, there are two questions I don't think you should ever ask. Are you saved and are you a Christian? And here's why. Someone with no church background will not likely know what it means to be saved or to be not saved. And while this could lead to an opportunity to explain to them what it means to be saved and why they need to be saved, it could also start a series of questions that actually goes in the opposite direction of evangelism and keeps from getting to the main point of what we're trying to get to. Also, the term Christian can be a stumbling block on its own as the term has often been associated with things that have little to do with Jesus. And remember, we're not trying to convince them to adopt the name Christian. We're trying to convince them they need Jesus. 
And if they understand their need for Jesus and they call on Jesus, then any baggage they may have in their mind of the name Christian is going to fall by the wayside all on its own. And we don't have to try to fight that battle before we get to evangelism. And then finally, and the issue we're most likely to deal with in Gaiman, is the abundance of cultural Christianity. The abundance of cultural Christianity has made it so people who aren't saved, thus they aren't Christians, they can affirm they are saved and they are Christians. And if we ask someone, are you saved or are you a Christian, and they affirm they are, it will then be difficult for us to evangelize them regardless of anything else. Regardless of how we may know they live, regardless of what they may do in their life, regardless of the number of times they have taken God's name in vain in our very conversation, once they've said they're saved and they've affirmed they're Christian, it becomes difficult for us to evangelize them without that becoming an offense and them determining we are judgmental towards them. So we avoid that and we don't ask those questions. Better to ask questions like this. Do you have any sort of a spiritual belief? To you, who is Jesus? Do you think there's a heaven or a hell? If you died today, where would you go? And if heaven, why would God let you in? If what you believe was not true, would you want to know? Can I show you some verses in the Bible that are important to me? Now, these are all, any combination of these questions would be good. Uh, any of them, and, and maybe even some you have on your own. I mean, there's, these aren't like set in stone. These are just some ideas to, to get a spiritual part going. And any of those would be good. Any combination of those would be good. The last two questions are very important because we want permission to share the gospel with people. Right? So... If what you believe was not true, would you want to know? Can I show you some verses that are important to me? And if they say no to those questions, then here's what we do. We thank them for their time. We may offer to pray for them right then. But then we just walk away. Because if they've said no, and they don't want to hear what we have to say, and we try to force it, we are not likely to evangelize them. We are building a different stumbling block than the gospel, which is its own stumbling block. So we want permission. If they say no, we say okay. And if they say yes, then we move to share the gospel with them. And one of the strengths of the, the method of evangelism I've, got, I've handed out to you is there's only two verses to know. Romans 6.23 and Romans 3.20. Now you don't have to have them memorized. You can, but you don't have to. You just have to know where they are in the Bible. You have to be able to find them, to point at them, and maybe to explain a few things from Romans 6.23 in simple terms. Right, so let's get started. Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this is where we spend the lion's share of the time in explaining and sharing the gospel with this particular method. And when we do, we, we simply break it down into various parts. And discuss the parts with them. So, the first thing we would do is we would point to the word sin. Right? And, and ask them, what do you think when you hear the word sin? Let them answer. 
Now, we don't try to argue with them. This isn't the time to, to argue. Let them give an answer. And whatever they say, just kind of go with it. I mean, this isn't, again, this isn't the time to try to argue. What, what do you think when you hear the word sin? Okay. Well, then you explain. Sin is the bad or wrong things we've done. Sin is violating God's law and God's word. Sin is doing what God has said not to do. There's two broad types of transgression, or two top broad types of sin. Now, you only have to use the two verses in Revelation and Romans, but I've put other verses in here in the handout in case you want to study it, and that way you can have it now if the need is there. So two broad types of sin, offenses and transgressions, offenses or transgressions, depending on what translation you have. This is knowingly and intentionally crossing a line. I knew what God said, but I wanted to do it anyway. An example, the sign reads, wet paint don't touch. Us, we reach out and touch it. That's transgressing. That is an offense. The other broad type is missing the mark. And that's trying to do what's right, but not quite being able to accomplish it. You can illustrate it by talking about a a marksmanship term. You shoot at the bullseye, but you don't quite hit it. That's missing the mark. Then after you've explained sin, you, you point at wages. And you ask, what is a wage? Most people are going to know what a wage is. And you explain. Wages are what we earn for our actions. If we agree to work five hours... For $10 an hour, at the end of five hours, we have earned $50. Sin, what we've already talked about, earns a wage. So what is the wage? Well, then you point to death and you ask, what comes to your mind when you think about death? And the reason we ask and explain is we don't want it to just be a lecture. We want them to be engaged. Jesus, as he evangelized people, often asked questions. So we ask and then we explain. Death is separation from God. Separation in this life and separation in the life to come. Death can be understood or separation can be understood in in three ways. Spiritual death now. We are right now separated from God because of our sin. So any person in their sin is separated from God. Second, there is physical death Eventually, death entered the world because of sin. And then there is the second death later. The ultimate wage of sin will not be experienced in this life, but in the next. And you can see with this, you can elaborate as much or as little as you want. You can explain that when God initially created humans, it wasn't supposed to die, but sin entered the world. And because of that, sin began to come. You can explain it, that sin creates a barrier between us and God. And we cannot walk in with God in the light and walk in the darkness of sin. It's simple. We can take all the time we want to or just keep it simple like this. Sin earns a wage of death because all sin is rebellion against God. Sin is treason against the king over all kings and the Lord over all lords. A subject saying to the king of their country, you will not rule over me, is rebellion. It is treason. Sin is rebellion and treason because the person sinning says these things to God. 
through their actions. Right? We've established sin is a violation of God's law and God's word. God has said this is how we are to live. The person in sin has said, I'm not going to live that way. And they are thus rebelling against God. So after you've explained that, you point to but. And you say but means this is not the end. But gives us hope. What is our hope? Well, then you point to the phrase gracious gift. And you ask, what is the difference between a wage and a gift? And then you explain a gift is something given to us that we did not earn. Our salary is a wage and not a gift. A Christmas bonus is a gift and not a wage. This gift being called gracious emphasizes the undeserving and free nature of the gift. It's not done or it's not given to us because of anything we have done or will do to earn it. We explain further. While every gift is free to the person who receives it, the person who gave it must still pay for it. So then you point to of God and ask, who paid for the gracious gift offered to us? There's nothing to explain there. You move on to the next. Eternal life. You point to eternal life and ask, how would you define these words? And then you explain. Eternal life speaks of not only the quantity of life, we live forever, but it also speaks of the quality of life, an abundant life. This is what is given to us as a gracious gift. And while this is great, there's still a problem. Our sin has still separated us from God. And we can illustrate this by saying we're on one side of the Grand Canyon and God is on the other side of the Grand Canyon with His gracious gift. Our sin is the canyon itself. And there is there are no natural means by which we can span the Grand Canyon and get to where God and His gift is. So we ask then, what is the opposite of separation from God? And then we explain. Still on eternal life. Ultimately, eternal life is knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. This is how eternal life, this is what eternal life is. This is where eternal life is found. So we ask again, what do we cross? What do we, how do we cross the canyon to where God and his gracious gift are? Let them answer because they probably don't know. They may have, this is, they may say things like do good works, be a good person, go to church sometimes, be a faithful member, whatever. They may have all of these answers. Let them answer. And then point to, depending on what translation you have, mine says, um, in Christ Jesus. Some may say through Christ Jesus. And then ask, what is the purpose of a bridge? And then explain, the gracious gift of eternal life is only given through Jesus. The sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross... The victorious resurrection of Jesus over the grave spanned the canyon separating us from God. Everyone is invited to cross the bridge to God and receive the gracious gift of eternal life through Jesus. So then how do we cross this bridge? Repent and believe. Repentance is a change of mind about God and sin resulting 
in a change of life. Remember, those who are on this side, who have not crossed over, they are in rebellion against God. And so notice the last two words in the verse. Our Lord. Jesus is Lord. Repentance leads us to stop our rebelling against the Lordship of Jesus. Stop our rebelling against God and submit to the Lordship of Jesus. Submitting to the Lordship of Jesus means choosing to live for Jesus. He is Lord over our life. What He says is wrong is wrong. What He says is right is right. And then you believe. To believe Jesus, or to believe is to believe Jesus is the only way across the canyon to God and His gracious gift. Now when we talk about this, we do want to emphasize these things. We want to emphasize it's only Jesus, right? Not not our personal goodness. We can't cross because we're good. We can't cross because we turn over a new leaf and we try to be good. We determine to be good in the future. We can't cross by our good deeds. We can't cross by, by anything we do. We have zero ability to get from our side of the canyon to God's side of the canyon. Jesus and Jesus alone is the way across the canyon. This is a point to, to really emphasize. There is only one way to cross from our side of the canyon to God's side of the canyon. And that is through Jesus our Lord. Believe is to believe all of those things. Believe is to believe Jesus and Jesus alone is the way of cross. It's not enough to believe there is a God. It's not enough to believe Jesus was a person. We must believe Jesus and Jesus alone is the way across the canyon. But believe is also to cross the bridge to God and receive his gracious gift. We trust the bridge will hold and we cross over to God believing Jesus is enough. Or, and this is where we look at the next verse, you could think of crossing the bridge as opening a door. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Now, there's a lot of ways you can do this. I like this verse because this verse was instrumental in my salvation. My, my granny Doolin was the first person to ever share the gospel with me outside of a church setting. And she shared it with a picture. The picture of Jesus standing at a door. She had it in her room and it always had it in her room. And one night I noticed there was not a doorknob on the outside. And so I asked, why is there not a doorknob? She explained, that is the door to your heart. And the doorknob is on the inside. And you have to open it to let Jesus in. And I said, how do I open the door? She said, you just ask Jesus to come in. I said, how will I know if he's knocking? She said, you just will. I, I didn't know what that meant. Later that night, I laid down in bed and I, I knew. I knew Jesus was knocking at the door of my heart. But I didn't let him in that night. I've told, probably told before, I had I'd already planned to join the army. 
And I knew there were things soldiers did that Jesus didn't want me to do. And so I held off, kind of prayed, don't let me die and go to hell. I want to get saved after I've done all these other things. So this is why I like this verse and I like to use it. And there's, of course, you can, there are visual illustrations you can use. I have, I actually have a picture of Jesus at the door that I keep it on the lock screen on my phone and my iPad so that I can use it if the opportunity arises. I can show them that and give them something to look at and to see Jesus at the door. And then we explain as we talk about this. We tell them in many ways, Jesus is knocking just by me sharing this with you. You may also be thinking in your mind or feeling in your heart, yes, I want this gracious gift of eternal life Jesus offers. This is also Jesus knocking, inviting you to open the door and let him in. Inviting you to come to him and receive the gracious gift of eternal life. And then once you've explained all of that, you ask a series of questions. Have you sinned? Now make them give you an answer. Don't just say, have you sinned and move on. Have you sinned? Now, if a person says no, you can kind of, there's a balance to do here. If a person says no, ask them why they think that. Right? Some people are going to say no just because they don't want to go any further. And if you can discern that's what it is, then just stop. There's no point in pushing. But if maybe they really don't think they've sinned, then that's where you can like go to Exodus 20. You can show them the Ten Commandments. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever had a lustful thought? Have you ever coveted something that wasn't yours? You can explain this is sin. Have you done those things? If so, you've sinned. And then you ask them, but you don't just tell them. See, you've sinned. You ask them, have you sinned? And if they will not say yes, if they just continue to say no, say, well, okay, I'm going to pray for you. And I mean, just there's no point in pushing on if they because if they won't acknowledge they've sinned, they can't be saved. So if they say, yes, I have sinned, it's a good start. The Holy Spirit's working. You move to the next question. Do you want the gracious gift of eternal life? Again, Make them give you an answer. Don't just rush. And and all of this may take time. You may have to take a minute or two or more on each question. Have you sinned? Maybe they don't want to admit it. Maybe they're ashamed. And you're not telling them they've sinned. You're just asking. So you give them the time to answer. Do you want the gracious gift of eternal life? If they say, no, I don't. You ask if you can pray for them. And then you move on because you can't force them to want it. But if they say yes, good sign. You move on to the next question. Are, do you believe Jesus died for your sin and rose again? Remember, everything rises and falls on Jesus. So they believe Jesus died for their sin, rose again is the only way. Give them time to think on that. If they say no, maybe talk to them. But if they're just persistent in a no, then move on. Because they can't be saved if they don't believe in Jesus. Jesus is the only way. But if they say yes, you go to the next question. Are you ready to surrender the surrender to the Lordship of Jesus? Right? Remember, we're not saying make Jesus Lord. Jesus is Lord. We're surrendering to the Lordship that already exists. And at this point, you give them, again, you stop and you give them time and you be silent 
and pray. Right? You, you give them time to make the decision. We're not rushing them. We're not manipulating them. I, I read a book on evangelism years ago, and it said basically at this point, you put your, you ask them, are you ready to pray to receive Jesus? And then without waiting for an answer, you put your hand on their shoulder and you bow your head. And the, and the book literally said this will exert tremendous psychological pressure and it will be difficult for them not to do what you're doing. We're not doing that. We're not car salesmen. We're not manipulators. We're not selling Amway or essential oils. We, they have to make their own decision about Jesus. And so we, we leave it there and do not rush it. Do not say, are, are you still thinking? Stay there. Look them in the eye. Pray with, pray silently. And make them give you a yes or a no. If they say no, ask why. Uh, years ago I was doing this with a guy and it took, it took a solid five minutes for him to answer the last question. He was so convicted that he was literally shaking. One of the few times I've ever seen in my life what the book of Acts talks about, about people trembling under the weight of the word. And after five minutes of silence and praying, he said, can I take a rain check on that? And I said, well, it's your decision. I, I can't make you. And he said, well, I, I don't want to right now. I said, okay, can I pray for you? He said, no, I don't think I want you to. I said, okay. And then that was the end. He never talked to me again. And, and that may happen. But if it takes five minutes, take five minutes. Be silent. Pray for them. They say no. Do ask why. Why not? And if they don't want to tell you, if they just tell you I'm just not ready, then that's fine. Okay. But if they say yes, invite them to pray out loud in their own words, confessing their faith in Jesus and their surrender to Jesus as Lord. Now, you can lead them in prayer with what typically is called a sinner's prayer. I am not a fan of the sinner's prayer. That's why I didn't put that in here. The sinner's prayer can make them more confident in the prayer you led them in than actually in Jesus Himself. And so at a later date, if you ask them, are you saved? Their answer is going to be, yes. Preacher led me in this prayer, so I know I'm saved. And we don't want to do that. We want them. And there's no, kind of tell them, there's no right or wrong things to say. You're, you're wanting to confess. Confess out loud, you have faith in Jesus. Confess out loud, Jesus is Lord over your life. There's any number of ways you can do that. When I got saved, I didn't pray a, a sinner's prayer. Nobody led me in prayer. I, I prayed the only prayer out of the Bible I knew. Jesus have mer- or Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I prayed it over and over and over again until I, I knew I was saved. Right? So there's, there is no magic sinner's prayer in the Bible that, that saves people. Their faith is what saves them. But faith, Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, must be confessed. Believe in their heart, confess with their mouth, and they will be saved. So just say, pray out loud. In your own words, confess your faith in Jesus. Confess Jesus as Lord over your life. Let them pray as, as long or as short as they want to. Once they have prayed, you pray for them out loud. And pray for the decision they've made to follow Jesus. Pray for them 
thank the Lord for their attentiveness, the opportunity, for their desire to be saved. Pray that God would strengthen them in the, the coming days and weeks and months and in all of those kind of things. Pray a very encouraging, helpful prayer for them. Let them hear you do it. And then once you finish praying with them, encourage them. Read their Bible. If they don't ask them if they have a Bible. If they don't, get them one. Uh, we have some here at the church. We, I mean, if they have a smartphone, encourage them to download the YouVersion Bible app right there. I mean, there, there's Bibles are plenty and available if they don't have one. Encourage them to read their Bible. Point them to something like either the Gospel of John or the Gospel of Mark. Right? We want them to read about Jesus. This is who their faith is in. This is who they need to know. So point them to the Bible. Point them to, to one of the Gospels. Uh, find, encourage them to find a church. Like them to our church. Maybe, but don't pressure them about our church. Right? If they have family that go to the First Baptist Church, encourage them to go to church. Michael will do a fine job preaching the gospel to them. If they have ties to the Nazarene church, encourage them to go to the Nazarene church. Craig will do a fine job preaching the gospel to them. If they go to the Methodist church, encourage them. If they have some ties there to go there, David will do a fine job encouraging them in the gospel. Right? But encourage them to find a church. If they don't have one, do invite them here, obviously. And then encourage them to tell someone. This is an important step to make their faith public before they go to baptism. To tell someone what God has done in their lives that night. Just text someone. Just call someone. Just tell them, I got tonight I got saved. So encourage them to tell someone as soon as they possibly can. And, and that is basically the steps to how to do it. Again, I think this is, I know it seems kind of long and it can take time like what we've taken tonight. But we're talking about the, the salvation of a soul. But this to me is a, a simple, logical, accurate, clear way to share the gospel with someone. And, and it's something I think, I think any of us can do this. Because now I, I put a lot of words in there, but you don't have to use all the words I used. I mean, in your own words, those breaking it down, do, do you know what a sin is? Do you know how that relates to our relationship with God? Then you can handle sin whether you use the words I put down or not. Do you know what a wage is and how that relates to sin and judgment? If so, you can do it. You can explain that. Do you understand the idea of, of eternal life, of that it comes from God? I mean, do you, if you understand those individual concepts, you can put them together. And by looking at the verse... You can see where you're supposed to go next. You're not having to do it all from memory. You, you start here. You go there. You go there. You, I mean, it just helps you to go in a logical way through what they need to know to give them a solid choice, an opportunity to come to Jesus. And then in closing, just some final tips on sharing the gospel. Trust the word of God and the spirit of God to do the work. As disciples of Jesus who are seeking to win souls for Jesus, we, we must be confident in the Spirit of God to take the Word of God and do the work in the person's life. Right? Those are verses to study about the Spirit and what He does, the power of the Word. Trust in those things. Trust far more in those things than illustrations or eloquence or anything else. Trust in the Word of God 
and the Spirit of God to do the work in the person God wants to save. Secondly, don't try to be junior Holy Spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit uses the word to bring conviction. And when we're showing the steps of salvation, it is critical we let the Holy Spirit do His work through the Word. And we don't try to be junior Holy Spirit by trying to be the ones to bring conviction. Again, if we're talking to people we know in a small town, we know a lot about, have you sinned? No. Well, really? That's not what I heard. You did this, this, and this. I remember when you were, you, I remember when you were a kid, I saw you do this, this, and this. That's not our job. That's we, we can't do that. We have to let Holy Spirit do His work. No one can come to the Father unless they're drawn by the Holy Spirit. And we can't do that. We must let Him do the work in the people's lives. We cannot try to be... Now, maybe that's not hard for you. I'm going to be honest. That's hard for me. Because... I think people ought to be deeply convicted of their sin if they don't know Jesus. And if it looks like they're not, or they're not taking it seriously, there is something, and I'm sure it's fleshly, I'm sure it is an entirely unsanctified part of my heart that wants to press in on the ways I know them to convict them. But that's judging. That is guilt. And guilt and conviction are not the same thing. The Holy Spirit is less about making people feel guilty than He is making people aware of something they did not previously know. They have sinned against God. They have no righteousness of their own. There is a judgment to come, but they can be saved from that judgment through Jesus. We must let Him do the work. And then, finally, don't be discouraged. If they don't surrender to Jesus when we share the gospel. I use the term soul winning. And I like the term soul winning. Because to me it puts emphasis on what we're trying to do. To me it carries a a seriousness about what we're after. In trying to win souls for Jesus. But the reality is we don't actually win souls. That's not even our job. Our job, according to God's word, 1 Corinthians 3, is to plant seeds and water seeds by sharing the gospel. That is literally the only job we have. It is God, according to 1 Corinthians 3, who gives the increase. It's the Holy Spirit who makes people aware of sin. It's the Word that brings deep conviction. It's the Spirit who draws people to Jesus. God does the work. All we do is plant and water. And if we have planted and we have watered and we were accurate in what we did, we were clear in what we did, we we gave them a clear sense of who Jesus is and what they need. We have done our job. What we did that night was a win and a success, whether they turn to Jesus or not. Now, none of that is going to make it any easier if we care about them, we love them, and we're desperate to see them saved. It's just not. But don't don't feel the failure if they don't come to Jesus. Several things about that. One, 
keep in mind, very few people come to Jesus the very first time they get saved. They, they hear the gospel. I didn't. Did you? And so it may take multiple times. Maybe opportunity will rise over and over again. Our job, we plant, we water, God gives the increase. And according to Mark 4, we don't know what's going on underneath the surface. We don't know what God is doing to take that seed we planted and to bring forth fruit for His glory in their salvation. I'll tell you a story I know I've told before, but it's my favorite story. Uh, and in a few weeks when we're in Mark and Sunday morning, you will hear this story again. But it is my favorite story. And I can't remember the guy's name, but I heard the story years ago. And there was a guy in Scotland. And he went to a Scottish Presbyterian church when he was like five years old. And the preacher preached. The gospel pricked his heart. But he didn't respond and come to Jesus. Later, his family moved to America. Literally 90 years later. He was working on the farm they had in America as an old man. And he stopped and he looked at the sunrise and he remembered the heavens declare the glory of God. And that took his mind back to the sermon that preacher preached 90 years ago. And he realized he needed Jesus. And right there on that spot, he got saved. Now, the preacher who preached never saw the fruit. At 95, I doubt his parents saw it either. But God still brought the increase. The seed was planted. The seed was watered. And God did His work. We don't know what God is doing in a person's heart underneath the surface. And so we trust and we rest in that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love You today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Father, we pray for opportunities this week, to share the gospel with someone. Lord, as the opportunities arise, give us courage to take it. And as we have the courage to take it, let your spirit be upon us. So our speech and preaching is not with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of your spirit and your power. Work in the heart and the ears of the person we share the gospel with to convince them they need Jesus. Let us have clarity of thought. Let us have clarity of speech. And regardless of the outcome, let us rejoice that we've been faithful to you. Let us rejoice seeds have been planted. And let us rejoice that you are the God who can do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or imagine. And Father, while we do pray that we would not get discouraged if people don't turn to Christ right then, we also pray for fruit. Give us souls for our labor. We all have people in our lives we care about. We want to see come to Jesus either for the first time or to, to really get on board with serving and living for Jesus. Give us fruit. Let us see them one to Christ, their souls saved, their lives changed, and then become on fire, fully devoted disciples of Jesus. Do it, Father, not because we're worthy, but because you're worthy of their praise. Do it, Father, not because we're good, but because... You are good and every good gift comes from you. Do it not because we're able, but because you are almighty. And you are the God who loves people far more than we could imagine. Glorify yourself by saving souls through us, through our church. And make us a gospel mission 
filled with spirit-filled disciples who are willing to give and go, send and support to ensure the gospel is fully proclaimed in Guyman, Goodwell, Hooker, Texhoma, to the ends of the earth. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.